Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. Uh, now, from what I understand, this episode is going to be, you've specifically chosen to dive into, I don't know, one of your greatest fears? <laughs> Yes, Sean, as someone terrified of air travel, as we've very well established, I do also have a morbid fascination with some of the biggest tragedies in aviation as well. And you could see uh, the Day the Music Died episode for further proof of that. I'm sure there are others, too. I guess D.B. Cooper doesn't quite apply. No, everyone was pretty much fine, except maybe him. So oh, I'm definitely. Good with that. Definitely him. <laughs> This week's story is one that I've been wanting to cover for quite a while, and just after I decided to for this week, I realized that this week also marks the 26th anniversary of the horrible event itself. So it's that weird synchronicity that I experience a lot in researching this podcast. Yeah, you do always seem to just accidentally pick, uh, I don't know, the six-year anniversary, the 30-year yeah. anniversary. Yeah, it's very weird, um, and, and not on purpose most of the time. But today, we'll be covering the tragedy of TWA Flight 800, which occurred on July 17th, 1996, and also the theories, conspiracy or otherwise, that surround the reasoning behind the horrific explosion that midsummer night. So as always, listeners, please know that we'll be covering this event with respect and that any lightheartedness will never be at the expense of the victims. Even 26 years later, as recent memorials have noted, this event still pains those who have lost loved ones that day. And I've also mentioned that this is officially known as an aviation accident, and I'll probably call it an accident many times this episode. But as I mentioned, um, like with many horrifying events, there are conspiracies surrounding the true cause of it. So in covering these conspiracies, we as always are doing so in the name of research. Uh, yes, and... Not in the name of promoting any one particular theory? Uh, Are you gonna, do you have a pet theory of your own? We'll talk about it at the end, but I mean, I'm fine with drawing conclusions, you know, but exploring some of these theories, it, it doesn't necessarily mean we believe in every conspiracy that comes across our table, which I'm sure our listeners can tell. Sure, I'm, I'm sure aliens come up at least once here. <laughs> uh, they, do, they don't, spoiler alert. What? <laughs> but... With that preface behind us, let's get into the main story of TWA Flight 800. So Transworld Airlines Flight 800 was a Boeing 747-100 passenger jet, registration number N93119, that was departing JFK Airport in New York City on the way to a stopover, well, near New York City, I guess, on the way to a stopover at Paris's Charles de Gaulle Airport with a final destination of Leonardo da Vinci Airport in Rome. Okay. The plane took off uh, from JFK around 8.19 p.m. Eastern Time, and just 12 minutes later, it would explode in air and crash into the Atlantic Ocean near East Mauritius, New York, uh, which is located about midway down the southern coast of Long Island. 12 minutes in, they didn't even get served their Cokes. No. It had earlier that day just traveled from Elinicon Airport in Athens, Greece, and arrived at JFK Airport around 4.38 p.m. 
It had been dis- uh, scheduled to depart at 7 p.m., but had been delayed until 8.02 due to a disabled piece of ground equipment, which was unrelated to the plane. I think it was one of the cars and a suspected passenger baggage mismatch. So they're kind of you know, it's a plane delay. Yeah, usual. It's, so far, it sounds like a flight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The plane itself had been manufactured by Eastern Airlines in 1971 and later purchased by Transworld Airlines. It had 16,869 flights and 93,303 hours of operation under its belt. After the refuel and crew change, um, once the flight arrived in from Athens, the new flight crew was Captain Ralph G. Kevorkian, not related to the doctor. Captain Death? No, uh, not related to the doctor. He had flown for TWA for 31 years and the U.S. Air Force for nine. There was Captain and Czech Airman Stephen E. Snyder, who had flown for TWA for 32 years and flight engineer slash Czech airman Richard G. Campbell Jr., who had flown for TWA for 30 years and the U.S. Air Force for 12 years. And all three men were in their late 50s and early 60s. Let's see. Do we have airmen? Czech? Yeah. I mean, they knew what they were doing. No, they're Czech airmen. Oh. (laughs) Um, Flight engineer trainee Oliver Crick was also on the flight, who who had been flying with TWA for just 26 days and was starting the sixth leg of his initial operating experience training. So while the plane was still at the tarmac during the refuel time, the ground maintenance crew locked out the thrust reverser for engine number three because of technical problems with the thrust reverser sensors during the landing of TWA-881 at JFK. This might be a stupid question. (laughs) Why would you want to reverse the thrust? Okay, well, if you're anything like me, you have no idea what any of that just meant. So I tried to figure it out. And in layman's terms, I hope I'm not getting it wrong. Any pilot experts get at us. But a thrust reverser system... They're featured on many jets to help them slow down after touchdown, basically reducing wear and tear on like the wheels, you know, when the the aircraft gets down. So they're rocket brakes. Kind of. According to Wikipedia, such devices affect the aircraft significantly and are considered important for safe operations by airlines. Now, if the thrust reverser for engine number three was locked out, that presumably means it was purposefully disabled and knowingly disabled due to the sensor problems during the most recent landing that same day. Why? Um, well, there were severed cables for this thrust reverser that were replaced, um, but they might have had other reversers, you know, ready to go. This one only says it's for engine number three. So they might have had other ones and felt like they didn't need this one. It must have been, you know, said to be safe to fly or else they wouldn't have been able to to take off with that knowledge. Also, during refueling, the volumetric shutoff or VSO control was believed to have been triggered before the tanks were full. Now, again, I tried to figure out what that means. Volumetric shutoff units can be set to automatically close the refuel valves when a preselected amount of fuel is loaded. So basically, it's just an autofill for the fuel tanks, and then it auto shuts off when there's all the fuel in there. Right. But if it was triggered before the tanks were full, I'm thinking that means that the tanks weren't full of fuel at liftoff or even overfilled. 
they probably didn't have full tanks is basically it right now that could that happen by accident like just a, a mal- technical malfunction yeah the weather was pretty much fine. There was light wind and scattered clouds, and it was approaching dusk. It was very warm since it was summertime. The jet took off uneventfully with the last radio transmission from the airplane occurring at 8.30 p.m. This is when the flight crew received and then acknowledged instructions from Boston Center to climb to 15,000 feet. Less than a minute later, the captain of an Eastwind Airlines Boeing 737 reported to Boston Air Traffic Control that he just saw an explosion out here. We just saw an explosion up ahead of us here, about 16,000 feet or something like that. It just went down into the water. Soon after, many more air traffic control facilities in the area received reports of an explosion from other pilots and witnesses began calling the police. Wow. Can you imagine? We saw a fireball that one time. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, the one thing that really strikes me so much about this incident is that there were so many civilian witnesses. I mean, hundreds. It was a lovely evening on Long Island. It was the height of summer. Many people were outside that night taking walks, boating, and just generally enjoying the summertime. I actually checked in with my family about this. And we, including myself, apparently, uh, I don't remember this, we were out on the North Fork of Long Island that night, taking a post-dinner stroll on the beach, when a family friend ran out to tell us what had just happened. Wow. The explosion had taken place closer to the South Fork of the island, so we were on the opposite side of the island from the line of vision, but we did see tons of helicopters on their way to the site of the crash. That's a five-year-old carry. Yeah, I don't remember any of this. I do remember the OJ um, car chase. chase. Yeah, but I don't remember this. I do often wonder what it would have been like to cast my eyes to the sky that evening and see the horror in real time. Uh, I think my fear of flying would be insurmountable if that were the case. Uh, Yeah, it's already. enough already. It already, as as established, it already takes you a couple of vodkas and a uh, Valium. Yeah, so I, I can't imagine being one of those people that saw this. Um, air traffic control began radioing Flight 800 to respond, but no one ever did. Upon realizing that it was likely them who had gone down, another pilot somberly stated, God bless them. On board were 230 total people, including 18 crew, 20 off-duty employees, intending on crewing the Paris-to-Rome leg of the flight, and 212 passengers, most of whom were American. 21 of those passengers were students and adult chaperones from the French club at Montersville Area High School in Pennsylvania who were heading to Paris on a field trip. So I'm pretty sure this is the basis for Final Destination because that's like the same. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure they... You think actually, actually? I, I think actually. I mean, it must be. It seems so similar. Um, and those teenage students are still known in the area as the Montersville High 16. Hmm. Many witness descriptions gave details that led many to believe the cause of the crash was a bomb or surface-to-air missile attack. Speaking with ABC7 Eyewitness News, witness Tom Kennedy stated, quote, I was pulling my boat back in, I was tying it up, and the guy next to me was tying his boat up. And the guy said, hey, look at the flare. And I turned around and I'm like, wow, somebody must have some trouble in the bay. No sooner I said that, the thing just exploded. 
So this seems to indicate that what Kennedy had seen was some sort of light or fiery object rising up from the water before the explosion, and then the plane exploding after. Is he the only one who said he saw that? Absolutely not. Many, if not most of the witnesses said that they saw that. This is a commonly described aspect of the explosion, and so there are many conspiracies. We'll go into those later. Uh, Chris Bauer, who was piloting his HH-60 helicopter that evening, reported seeing two explosions and a waterfall of flames spiraling down to the water. His first thought was that two planes had collided. Bauer and his flight engineer were the first on the scene to recover bodies in the water. They didn't find any survivors, obviously. Jim Cullen, vice president of the King Cullen Grocery Company at the time, a very big chain on Long Island, heard about the flight going down off of Mauritius Inlet where he lived, and he headed out on his speedboat with a neighbor to attempt to assist. What he I've got pizza bagels. <laughs> Who needs pizza bagels? Well, he had a boat, and that was enough while they were still scrambling to get people out there. What he found, he told Newsweek, was horrific. There were Legs and internal parts floating around. It smelled like rot. Bodies fell apart as they tried to pull them on board. When Cullen had arrived back home at 4.30 a.m., it was only after filling his sleek fishing boat with bodies. Really, really horrifying stuff. And all the pizza bagels had gone stale. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You got to find something. You got to find something. Yeah, it's, it's just so grim. The National Transportation Safety Board was notified around 8.50 p.m. of the accident, and their full GO team arrived from Washington, D.C. the next morning. Notably, the NTSB does not investigate criminal acts, so the explosion was being treated by them as an accident. However, the FBI initiated a parallel criminal investigation at the same time. And, you know, so there's like an accident investigation and a criminal investigation. They're two different government branches. Are they talking to one another? Because a lot of times... They're talking, but they're not getting along. Also ongoing at this point were uh, search and recovery operations, which were undertaken by federal, state, local agencies, along with government contractors and people like Jim Cullen. (laughs) I mean, you know, whoever could help. It became one of the largest scuba diver... Uh, assisted salvage operations ever conducted at the time and more than 95 percent of the plane wreckage eventually was recovered and remains of all the victims were found and identified wow i don't know if they're full bodies in every instance but by july 22nd a hundred of those bodies had been recovered the wreckage began to be transported to a hangar about 10 miles away for accident reconstruction and investigation. Do we know how deep the pieces were that they were recovering? Um, well, I think it's uh, it's closer to a bay, yeah. So, I mean, you so know, it's a, it's a general bay area, though if, it ha- if the plane had taken off an hour earlier, as it was intended to, the water would have been over 1,000 feet deep. So, at the very least, it was easier to recover things because of that delay. Right. And and they didn't need, like, a James Cameron little tiny submersible with the arms. No, but there were was a lot of scuba going on. Pathologists work nonstop to identify the bodies, and the damage to the bodies varied. 
some victims' bodies were mostly intact, but most were either burned, fragmented, skeletonized, or decaying. So they had to be identified by DNA testing and dental records or personal effects. The article Behind a Calm Facade, Chaos, Distrust, Valor, published in the New York Times a bit over a month after the explosion, um, was kind of a special report on the first 36 days of the investigation. Such a long headline, and the word (laughs) plain isn't even... Where was the editor? I don't know. Um, This article kind of illustrates the horror of the situation along with the kind of banal strangeness of this investigation. Quote, at one point, after reports of HIV-infected blood on the flight circulated, a brief panic erupted on the Coast Guard station dock. A glass container broke and something that might or might not have been blood splashed everywhere. A madcap cleanup with bleach and brushes followed. Madcap? Were the Marx Brothers involved? (laughs) It's just so 90s, you know. There's also the fact that there was no real pattern to the injuries. Someone might have been completely destroyed while the person they were sitting next to was still relatively intact. Um, Charles Wetley, who is the medical examiner, stated, We saw no indication that those seated in the vicinity of the center fuel tank would have had more damage than those seated elsewhere on the plane. This will factor in later. Because uh, it implies, like, that that fuel tank didn't exp- like if that tank exploded, the people nearest it would be more mangled. Is that the at idea? least there'd be more of a pattern of it? Um, many passenger seats that had sustained fire damage did not correlate with similar burns on the passengers supposedly sitting on those seats. So that could possibly mean that they had these passengers had been expelled from their seats before the fire spread to the main cabin. Hank Hughes, the senior accident investigator for the NTSB, concluded from this that with the injury patterns and seat damage being random and usually not correlated, the cause of the explosion must have been a high ordnance detonation, not a low-speed explosion, like a center fuel tank blowing up. High ordnance. Mm-hmm. So high, some kind of a high-yield bomb, high like a, mil- a military. Could be. Mm-hmm. Shrapnel indicated that there was an explosion from below, but there was apparently no definitive physical or chemical evidence that a bomb was the cause. The Chicago Tribune wrote in August, Officials believe the crash was caused by an explosive, a missile, or mechanical failure. Forensic tests have not discovered traces of chemical substances that would indicate an explosive. Wow, so that at that point, though, they, they weren't ruling it out, even publicly, public comments. Well, it was especially because of so many witness statements saying they had seen some sort of flare going toward the plane and then the plane exploding. Initially, it was believed that everyone had died in the first explosion instantaneously, with uh, the medical examiner saying, it's like a car smashing into a brick wall at 400 miles an hour. It's an extremely violent whiplash, an instant loss of consciousness. You would hope. Well, horribly, it came out later that that was likely not the case. Newsweek wrote just a week and change after the tragedy that most of the corpses Wetley and his team examined had been killed by the impact of hitting the water after falling from a height of more than two miles. A long, minute-and-a-half, terrible way to die. You could have given us another week first, Newsweek. Yeah, they were really in on the details. They're the ones that talked about Jim Cullen t- pulling body parts out of the water. It's like, 
Whoa. Yeah, it's like the beginning of Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, I mean, their reporting on this was not like post 9-11 where we kind of expect those grisly details. Right. I was very surprised by it. And you're reading it like, this is a waiting room. Yeah, basically. Uh, Later, CNN reported in December of 1996 that the NTSB concluded that 15 people may not have died instantly and four passengers definitely weren't killed by the explosion. In the cases of another 28 victims, the NTSB was unable to determine whether they might have lived for a short time after the explosion. But the bulk of passengers, 183, were killed instantly. So, Cold comfort? I mean, for most of them, I guess, but not all of them. It's just really, really awful. During the autopsy process, uh, Charles Wetley, the medical examiner, said that while he couldn't rule out a bomb as the cause, the pattern of injuries he had seen would not be consistent with a bomb, plastic or otherwise, in the passenger cabin. So take, take that how you will. Okay, but I don't think anyone was, if, if there was any reason to suspect the man-made bomb in the first place, it was because people saw something shooting toward the plane, right? Right. Friction began immediately during the, the investigation, as you had mentioned, with the FBI kind of sidelining um, both the NTSB and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. That's what the FBI does. I've seen Die Hard. Yeah. Um, the, the Bureau of ATF, basically, um, they were part of the investigation into the cause of the explosion, as, you know, they do bomb stuff. Uh, one investigator noted... The ATF agents were relegated to sitting at picnic benches and tables. They weren't allowed to do anything. Picnic benches and tables like they're on lunch break or in Mm -hmm. timeout. Yeah. Accident investigator James Spear said, On my first day there, when I had the tour of the Calverton hangar, there was a structural piece of the aircraft lying on the floor that had three holes blown through it like a twenty-two through a tin can with an obvious entrance and exit side of the penetration. I was about to take a picture of it, and somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, don't take that picture. That person was a member, uh, according to Spear, of the FBI. Like a twenty-two, like a twenty-two caliber? Mm-hmm. So small holes. Um, I think bigger than you'd think, probably like fist-sized, because guns leave bigger holes than you would expect. Well, sure, but I've shot like targets with a twenty-two. They, it doesn't... It, it didn't holes... seem like they were super small. Okay. So I don't know. <laughs> the FBI was also having issues with the NTSB and vice versa, since there seemed to be some murkiness on the subject of who had senior jurisdiction. So again, it's all this political red tape haggling type of stuff. And there was also the issue of the witnesses. More and more were coming forward saying that they felt they'd seen Flight 800 being hit by an object preceding the explosion. An Air National Guard pilot told news outlets that is exactly what he saw. And other witnesses uh, reported smoke trails corkscrewing up toward the airplane before the explosion. Well, that's... Don't you think... If that was a thing, I I feel like a a lot of... A good portion of the witnesses would have seen that. But it's weird that like a lot of people said, I saw something streak toward it. And a few of them were like, I saw pluming smoke trails. I don't know. I mean, different perspectives you know some people are closer 38 of the 258 witnesses on record had seen a streak of light ascending moving to a point where a large fireball appeared with some witnesses reporting that fireball had split in two as it descended toward the water 
Was the plane in two pieces? It did fall apart in some pieces, yes. The, especially the nose, which we'll talk about. Um, the nose of the plane did fall off um, as it was still in air. In the documentary TWA Flight 800, witnesses state that it looked like a larger-than-standard flare and that it rose up from the horizon and then outbound to sea quite rapidly, almost like it, it took a turn, this initial flare-looking thing. Oh, are some... Wait, I thought aliens weren't going to get involved here because this is UFO stuff. Well, you say so, but missiles can turn. Um. It was shiny uh, with a smoke trail behind it. One person stated it looked like a missile vapor trail to me. Four different. Was this person like a military personnel? or There had was just a seen... guy, I, I forget if this it was this guy, but there was a guy who did fly missions in Vietnam hmm. during the war. And he was like, I know what a missile is. This was a missile. Four different witnesses stated in the documentary that it turned or curved um, and went right by, like right toward a passing plane, which would be Flight 800, and exploded beside it. So it didn't hit it necessarily, but the explosion beside it caused the plane to react. Ah, shit, it was supposed to be a warning shot. <laughs> the massive engines of the 747 would have also been veritable magnets for any heat-seeking rocket. One man who was standing on the beach at the time of the accident said he saw a very bright mast light in the ocean, and I saw another object rise out of the ocean, and then just after this point, the explosion happens. Uh, can you define mast light? It's a very, very bright light, uh, in this case, that is on the mast of a ship that's in the harbor or the ocean or whatever. Witnesses also detailed the FBI mishandling their interviews the next day, including descriptions of abusive behavior and gaslighting. And the FBI didn't record um, any of the interviews. They just wrote down kind of general notes. I think we can agree that is at least bad form. Definitely not good. The cockpit voice recorder recorded the final moments before the explosion and crash. At 8.29 p.m., Captain Kravorkian was heard to say, Look at that crazy fuel flow indicator there on number four. See that? A loud noise recorded on the last few tenths of a second of the CVR was similar to the last noises recorded from other airplanes that had experienced in-flight breakups for one reason or another. Okay, fuel system indicator. Now we're kind of pointing back towards some kind of a mechanical malfunction, right? Could be. According to the official accident report, trace amounts of explosive residue were detected on three samples of material from three separate locations of the recovered airplane wreckage, described by the FBI as a piece of canvas-like material and two pieces of a floor panel. This, of course, sparked much conjecture on it having been a bomb or missile because, you know, explosive residue. But the NTSB ended up concluding that it was quite possible that the explosive residue detected was transferred from military ships or ground vehicles or the clothing and boots of military personnel onto the wreckage during or after the recovery operation and was not present when the aircraft crashed into the water. Well, I guess, but only if it's a very small, um, that, that would be if it's like trace amounts, right? Yeah. Now, there was also the discovery that before the crash, a bomb-sniffing canine training session was held aboard the aircraft at St. Louis Airport. Oh, the th Not the same day. Like, it might have been a month before. I don't think it was earlier than that. I know it was a June date. All right, so we're back to very trace amounts. <laughs> it was felt that residue had likely been left by a mistake after this session and could account for the explosive residue that had been found. 
However, there's a slight issue with this. The person conducting the exercise hadn't noted the tail number of the plane during the session. Also, flight regulations require the crew to be aboard a flight an hour before liftoff, whereas the exercise was noted in the official notes to have concluded just a half hour before um, what would become TWA 800 took off. So this would mean that the cabin crew would have been on board before the exercise even began, and that would have made it kind of impossible. Wouldn't be an exercise in that case. Right. So it might not have been the same plane is basically the point. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But it was supposed to be... There's no definitive evidence because that the flight number or the plane number wasn't noted that TWA 800 was for sure the bomb sniffing dog training plane but they think it was because it was supposed to be yeah okay so either way these possibilities along with the supposed lack of any other corroborating evidence associated with a high energy explosion led the ntsb to conclude the in-flight breakup of twa flight 800 was not initiated by a bomb or missile strike so if not foul play what happened great question, Carrie. Please enlighten us. Well, according to the investigating parties, it seemed like something had happened in or around the center fuel tank due to damage and melted aluminum in that area. The July heat could have increased the temperature in the center fuel tank as it sat outside in the sun that day, causing fuel to vaporize and creating enough vapor to cause an explosion. If there were an igniting spark. God, flashes of our um, spontaneous human combustion episode (laughs) with the wicking fat. Mm -hmm. But what could have been that igniting spark? Theoretically, the wiring may have failed. um, But the only evidence for this possibly was related to the captain saying that there were crazy readings on the engine fuel flow gauge. Um, They didn't ever find basically an ignition source in all of the wreckage that they found. Atmospheric sources were investigated, including lightning and meteor strikes, um, other mechanical failures on the plane, and even static electricity. And there was no definitive conclusion as to, okay, well, this could have blown up, um, you know, vis-a-vis the fuel, but like what blew it up? What was on fire? What ignited it? No, and they could never figure that out. But it could have been just a passenger brushing their feet too many times on the uh, carpet. No, it would have had to be in the fuel tank, I think. So that even reduces, you know, what it could have been. The final verdict from the NTSB was as follows. An explosion of the center wing fuel tank, CWT. They love abbreviating things (laughs) in the military and in uh, all air travel. They're all military guys resulting from the ignition of uh, the flammable fuel-slash-air mixture in the tank. The source of ignition energy for the explosion could not be determined with certainty, but of the sources evaluated by the investigation, the most likely was a short circuit outside of the CWT that allowed excessive voltage to enter it through electrical wiring associated with the fuel quantity indication system. So again, it's a theory. They don't have evidence for it. Uh, In addition to their probable cause, the NTSB found the following contributing factors to the accident. Wait, just to be clear, the fuel gauge wasn't working, so it made the tanks explode? Uh, It was, yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, the pilot was looking at the fuel gauge just before, right? And just it said something about the fuel quantity indication system and that wiring being the cause. That's interesting. There was a short circuit outside of the tank that could have allowed excessive voltage to enter it through the wiring. Right. So, but the fuel quantity indication system, the fuel light shorts out and the pilot's like, hey, something's weird with the fuel. Bro, kaboom. Maybe. So the NTSB also said the design and certification concept that fuel tank explosions could be prevented solely by precluding all ignition sources. The certification of the Boeing 747 with heat sources located beneath the CWT with no means to reduce the heat transferred into the CWT or to render the fuel tank vapor non-combustible. Basically, what that, this means... That one was Greek to me, I have to be honest with you. They said they think that, along with the summer sun, the air conditioning packs, which were located directly beneath the fuel tank, could have created the heat that was needed to transfer to the CWT and make it combustible. Because the, the air conditioning was on, and it was very hot, and it was right beneath the fuel tank. Reaching this final conclusion took the NTSB just over four years of investigation, with the report being published in 2000. Interestingly, back in August of 1996, right after this happened, the evidence seemed to point the other way. According to the New York Times article previously mentioned, the NTSB people were fine, certainly knowledgeable, but they had blinkers on, man, said a federal agent who worked (laughs) out at the hangar. Who was played by uh, Pauly Shore, apparently. (laughs) No opinions, no nothing. Their black boxes seem to rule out mechanical malfunction. Their systems, people said, all safety directives have been complied with for this aircraft. The engines were fine. Their theory about a fuel explosion evaporated. So maybe they had to come back around to this theory, but it's very interesting that closer to the accident, things are different. And of course, you know, different data says different things, right? But yeah, maybe the fuel explosion... Less time to spin, you know. Maybe the fuel explosion theory evaporated back then because they were like, well, no fuel source, no ignition source, and then they had a few years to work on what the ignition source could have been. Could have, but still no proof. Considering the extensive damage to the aircraft's front landing gear, many FBI and ATF agents at this time went off the record to state that they felt the damage was consistent with bomb damage. But it seems that had all changed by 2000 when the official report came out. So either, you know, changing culture or uh, mounting evidence or cover-up. There are many possibilities. 13 years later, on June 19, 2013, the NTSB acknowledged in a press release that they had received a petition for reconsideration of its investigation into Flight 800. In 2014, the NTSB declined the petition... <laughs> Uh, In a press release, they also stated, after a thorough review of all the information provided by the petitioners, the NTSB denied the petition in its entirety because the evidence and analysis presented did not show the original findings were incorrect. However, many think that the findings were incorrect, and in fact, a cover-up has been in place since the very beginning. But why and how? Well, we'll go into these theories after the break. Oh, I am so confused already and I can't <laughs> wait to dive further in. Let's go. <laughs> I 
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Welcome back. I'm not going to waste too much of your time here because I know we have a dense information to get to in this story. Um, but in the earlier segment, we heard all about the summer 2006 crash of TWA. 1996. We heard all about the summer 1996 crash of TWA Flight 800 and the deaths of its 250-odd passengers. 30. 230 passengers? 230 passengers. Carry the... Causes uh, seemed to be settled with a report in 2000, but but a lot of people say that's not the case. Right. Now, I mentioned the documentary TWA Flight 800 previously in this episode, and I do think watching it years ago was a big starting point for me in my knowledge of this case. So this doc um, aired on Epix, which I don't even know if it still exists anymore. Uh, E-P-I-X, of yes. course. Uh, the- on a satellite uh, TV system <laughs> near you, presumably. Yes, back in 2013. And it seems to agree most with the theory that the plane was destroyed by th- up to three proximity fuse missiles, though it doesn't cast blame at any particular party for launching those missiles. That's the safest thing. Mm-hmm. The reception to the film was mixed. Some, like Stephen Pope of Flying Magazine, felt that it was made in good faith and without cynical motives. It's damning with faint praise, isn't it? (laughs) But others, like Alex Davies of Business Insider, felt that the film didn't show adequate support for its claims. I thought it was a a pretty well-made documentary. Obviously, it seemed to want to be proving something. So it definitely had a goal, but it wasn't it wasn't like Fahrenheit 9/11, like it wasn't very sensational. Sensational. Yeah, it was pretty straightforward. Cool. But um let's go into what some of the documentary's claims are. The main thing is obviously that TWA 800 was purposely shot down by a missile aimed at them from land or sea. This is, of course, due to the many eyewitness accounts that insisted they had seen something resembling a flare shoot towards the plane and eventually hit it or hit near it, causing the explosion and eventual crash. However, both the CIA and the FBI concluded that the many eyewitnesses did not see a missile. Their theory was that just after the initial explosion, the plane pitched up abruptly, climbing from 13,800 feet to 17,000 feet very quickly. The CIA animation on the case uh, states, those who said that they saw something ascend and culminate in the explosion probably saw the burning aircraft ascend and erupt into a fireball, not a missile. And the not a missile finding is bold and underlined in text in the video for added emphasis. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, obviously, I keep saying not a missile. A link to that video on our website and probably our socials. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Wow. So wait, the force of the first explosion or or, or what threw off its pitch and then the, the plane just climbed? That's what they said. And so, yeah, but weren't those witnesses saying they saw a plane in the air and then something ascending to strike that plane? That's what they said. Um, some some FBI agents said it was the like the bystander kind of effect or the witness effect where you're not you think you see something and you don't um, that all of these people had it somehow. The guy in the documentary was like, I don't know psychology, but that's what I was told. It's <laughs> like, oh, okay. So in the film, Tom Stalkup, uh, a physicist and investigative reporter who also co-produced the film, gave his impression of seeing that video and conclusion given on the news soon after the incident. I felt assaulted. I felt as if I was being lied to. It looked more like a big piece of propaganda than the results of an air crash investigation. And I just knew that there was something wrong. It just seemed odd to me that they had to focus so much on telling us what it wasn't rather than what it was. You know what feels like propaganda is when the producer of a documentary is is one of the main <laughs> interviews. Well, he's been one of the biggest proponents of um, getting the government to admit that there was a cover-up. And in accessing all this information and filing freedom of information acts. So I, you know, I'm not surprised. Um, stalk up that evening found the testimony, uh, on the internet of the black Hawk helicopter pilot who was in the air at the time and who had gone to the press saying that the, he had witnessed an object hit the plane. So this kind of sparked even further interest. And you always get better, um, it's a more credible witness when it's a military person, you know, right. especially a pilot who you feel like is used to scanning the horizon with his mm-hmm. eyes. Stalkup called uh, several of the other listed witnesses who recalled the event vividly, uh, vividly for him. And they insisted that they saw something rise from below and hit on or near the plane. There was a flare and then an explosion, not an explosion and then a flare. So this is where he began to investigate. Of the CIA video, accident investigator James Spear says, I think the zoom climb, which is the plane pitching up after the explosion, is fraud, waste, and abuse. (laughs) I don't know how they, the FBI, got the CIA to get involved in this. Absolutely ridiculous (laughs) Absolutely ridiculous animation. I don't know. How do you get the CIA to lie? (laughs) That's his belief for sure. No, 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 I'm kidding. This, I think the CIA mostly lies. Isn't that their jobs? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Robert Young, TWA senior accident investigator, agreed. I don't think that there's any engineering justification that says the plane can do what their video said it did. The main reasoning here is that the nose came off, as we mentioned before, during the initial explosion and fell quickly to the sea. The nose of the plane by itself weighed about 90,000 pounds. Wow. So the uh, investigators who were quoted in the documentary argued that if the center of gravity were disrupted that much and the airplane tips up, it would either stall and fall or break apart instantly. Well, that's true if the rear of the plane isn't also heavy. Yeah, but it's usually not going to be heavier than the nose. So they're basically saying it wouldn't tip up and then climb a further several thousand feet. One witness stated, that animation didn't resemble anything that I saw in any way whatsoever. 
He even called the FBI after watching it to tell them they were off in what they depicted, to which the FBI asked if he wanted to change his story. Basically like, well, do you want it to match this? Oh, we can, we can help you match it. Just say what, uh, yeah, we'll send someone down. You can just describe the video to us. Yeah, so he declined that offer. <laughs> Another witness insisted they hadn't seen anything rise up from the explosion, and that fireball fell like a stone. Another documentary interviewee, Ray Lar, who was a Navy military pilot, a commercial pilot for the United for United Airlines and a longtime aviation safety representative for the Airline Pilots Association, stated, These people on the shoreline saw this bright streak originating from near the surface, not a point two and a half miles in the sky, which is what the video depicts. They just show it start in the sky. Right, well, because that's where the ex- that's where the first explosion would have happened in the plane. Right, starts they don't up. they don't show like a missile like object going up, basically. How they calculated that zoom climb? If I could get that information, I could prove that they jimmied the data. I filed a Freedom of Information Act request to the CIA and the NTSB for the data and calculations that they used for the zoom climb. They refused to give me the information. Lar, however, uh, due to I think some legal intervention, did receive some internal CIA memos, and with Stalkup filing a lawsuit against the CIA and receiving more other information, uh, they were able to find a document that specifically discussed the eyewitness account of Mike Wire, who had been standing on a bridge uh, when he saw what had happened. Now, he was standing there, and he said he saw what he called a cheap firework arc up in a 45 to 50 degree angle from behind the nearby roof line and go out to sea. The memo that was obtained by Lar and Stalkup shows that this particular ascending object seen by wire could not have been TWA 800 itself because of where it had originated from. Because of the, because it coming from the nearby roof line? Well, just that direction. It, it wouldn't have been the zoom climb. It wouldn't have been the explosion happening and then it ascending and it being kind of like an optical illusion. Right. Because of what Mike Wire saw, it seems to lend, or says he saw, uh, it seems to lend credits that something headed out toward the plane. Well, but if he only saw something headed up at a 45 to 50 degree angle, couldn't that have just been the plane doing its normal climb? No, because I believe the plane was coming from a different direction. And this also, it arced up and turned to go out to sea. So there was some movement to it. It didn't shoot straight up. The CIA video even changed this account, showing the white light seen by wire starting high up in the sky and not behind the house as he had seen it and then proceeding upwards. But as wire stated, that's not what I saw. Well, maybe they just removed that, just trying to play devil's advocate. Maybe they just removed the buildings you know what i mean so it starts boop, no, no, at the, the top of the buildings the, i saw it the houses are there oh no so there is a roof line it just starts two miles up in the sky huh for his part lar was disheartened by the experience it was the first time i ever distrusted my country in world war ii i couldn't wait to serve and i stayed in the navy reserve i believe in this country and for that kind of cover-up to be tolerated it makes me fighting mad well, welcome to the uh, latter part of the 20th century, yeah. Lar. The rest of the country, I think, was there 20 years ago? <sighs> yeah. 
Another witness stated that after giving her eyewitness account, the representative from the FBI asked if she had her papers in to become an American citizen. And the woman confirmed that she did. Allegedly, the FBI responded saying, well, it would be very wise of you if you want to become an American citizen to keep very quiet about this and not to talk about it. Wow. So it's literally like the movie JFK. Yeah. You know, just these threats. Or the uh, reporter in Die Hard. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have ice down here in no time. Whatever it is he says. (laughs) Hughes further alleges that during his time on the investigation, David Meyer Uh, A representative from the NTSB who, according to his own biography, was responsible for investigative data management and leading eyewitness activities on the investigation. This guy came to the evidence hangar and began changing the data on at least 10 to 12 evidence tags, editing the locations where the pieces of evidence were found. And you can see this on the tags. The first zones are crossed out. And new ones are written in. Does he say he's he was? Does he say he was correcting them, or what's his excuse? Uh, he refused to be interviewed. They did ask him. So, for example, the aft keel beam, which is under the center tank, originally came down in what was designated as the yellow zone for evidence recovery. There was the yellow zone, red zone, green zone. The evidence tag was physically altered to state it actually came down in the red zone which is a different area, and it's speculated that this is because it fit much better with the exploding center tank theory if this particular piece was recovered from the red zone. Well, it's a pretty smart uh, cover-up. Not if you're just Xing something out. (laughs) I mean, you could see it. When it came time for the official public hearing on the findings, several investigators stated in the documentary that they were threatened to keep silent during the hearing for fear of possibly losing their jobs and or other repercussions. The eyewitness testimony portion of the hearing was also canceled, and Hank Hughes stated that his official report was cut and amended without my knowledge. He also added, we were directed to write a factual report, but not an analysis. Charles Wetley, the medical examiner, also stated he was told not to provide analysis on the data. In both cases, the directive to not provide an analysis of the facts uh, and circumstances of the incident in question was extremely unusual, and they both said this was the only time it ever happened to them. They're like, listen, we will draw the conclusions for you. Mm -hmm. Just tell us what you know is true. And they both said, like, there's never been another case where I was told not to give my analysis. Right. And then we'll decide whether we have to kill you based on what you've noticed. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Now, uh, in terms of evidence, there was a splatter pattern of material deposited on the top of the center wing fuel tank. The pattern, intriguingly, was continuous across the, fla- the fracture lines where the plane had broken up into pieces, but it was not found on the fracture's surface. So basically, what that means to investigators. (laughs) Thank you. This debris, uh, this splatter, was deposited prior to the center wing tank exploding, which is weird. Because that's supposed to be what caused the whole thing. Right. It was never definitively identified what the splatter was from either. Both Hank Hughes and Bob Heckman, who was an explosives unit um, examiner for the FBI in the investigation, stated that they had never even been shown this evidence. Uh, uh. Uh, It had been brought down to NASA at the time for testing, and the NASA tester, Charlie Barrett, 
gave Tom Stalkup a copy of his report wherein he describes finding the presence of 7.5 micrograms of nitrate within the splatter, which could indicate the use of explosives. Or something else, maybe. (laughs) But it could be explosives. Okay. But that's a tiny amount. Well, it was just this one sample of the splatter. It wasn't like all of it. However, testing was discontinued on the splatter after this point, even though they had just found nitrates and in any other investigation, they would have continued testing. Mm. Dr. Merritt M. Berkey, the chief technical advisor and lead fire and explosives investigator for the NTSB, says in the documentary, I don't have a recollection of why I didn't order more testing other than to say we didn't do it. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Has he moved on to another job at this point? They're all retired. They're all guys. The upper surface uh, of the left wing of the plane was shattered while this was not the case for the right wing. Now, fuel was contained in both wings, so the NTSB reasoned that the impact of the left wing hitting the ocean pressurized the fuel, causing it to burst and shatter the surface of the wing. Okay, I buy it. But they also stated that the left wing had broken off in the air and spilled much of its fuel as it had broken. So would the impact with the ocean really cause the kind of hydraulic forces needed to shatter the wing with so much less fuel? Well, maybe not, but the wing also might have not needed as much of an impact if it already was burst. Well, what could cause those needed hydraulic forces was some kind of impact to or near the left wing while still attached to the plane and still full of fuel. And then it shatters and then it falls off. Some eyewitnesses saw the plane bank to the left, which could have been caused by this initial impact or nearby explosion. And the right wing, still being attached to the plane with all its fuel, could have shifted the direction of the craft. But do you think it's possible that the bank of the plane that some witnesses saw and the bank of the missile that some witnesses saw could be the same object turning slightly in the air? Well, the left turn of the plane was also captured on radar. Eyewitnesses also detailed seeing a white cigar-shaped cloud behind the plane, which could very likely have been the fuel from the left wing that had immediately vaporized Mm -hmm. because it would have looked white in that case. Stalkup says that it's this radar that is also the smoking gun in this case, disproving the center fuel tank self-explosion theory. Just after flight 800 lost power on the radar, basically when it might have exploded, it is shown that debris is swiftly moving away from the site of the explosion at a rate of Mach 4, or four times the speed of sound. Wow. The official NTSB conclusion states that the explosion of the center wing fuel tank was a low velocity explosion, or slower than the speed of sound. So how could wreckage be traveling away from the site of the explosion faster than the speed itself when the explosion was slower. Superman? (laughs) Is it Superman? No. The one woman did uh, describe it as looking like the original flare missile thing as looking like Superman does in the movie. Like that kind of... Streaky. Streaky look, yeah. So here's the gist of the final documentary theory on what really happened to Flight 800 in the documentarian's and witnesses' own words. It'll be 800, many altitude maintained, uh, 1,000, 3,000, 13,000 only for now. After climbing out of JFK Airport, 
Flight 800 leveled off at 13,000 feet. Moments later, a fast-moving object was seen racing horizontally out to sea from Long Island's south shore, heading east-southeast. One of the dozens of eyewitnesses who saw Object 1 was Lisa Perry. And I see something that's going across the sky. It's going very quickly. It looked kind of like that Superman bullet. Oh, there it is. A few miles mm -hmm. offshore, it turned upward and began climbing while heading south. And it wavered and zigzagged as it flew. Then it turned. At this time, a second object rose off the ocean miles away and further to the east. Both objects began converging on Flight 800. Object 2 approached the jetliner head-on. And then start climbing, passing my altitude. Pilot Vasilis Bakunis, flying at 2,000 feet, saw the object rising from below his altitude. Is this the Blackhawk? Meanwhile, Object yeah, 1 headed sure. behind and to the right of Flight 800. It suddenly turned left toward the jetliner and exploded near Flight 800's left wing. The detonation of Object 1 near the airplane caused the upper surface of the left wing to shatter. As the plane banked to the left, misted fuel coming out of the top of the left wing made a thick white plume of vapor behind the jetliner. Then, Object 2 exploded with two nearly simultaneous explosions. Two ordnance explosions. The time difference between the two explosions was a fraction of seconds. A third object came racing out of the ocean and climbed sharply. It appeared to come from a ship. At night and evening, ships turn on their lights. Sometimes they'll have a bright mast light. This particular vessel had a very bright mast light. From the mast light, there was another flash, and I saw another object rise out of the ocean. Object 3 exploded underneath the aircraft's nose, causing it to fall off. As the aircraft fell to the ocean, its wings broke off, creating two huge fireballs in the sky. Okay, so he has the documentarians, and mm -hmm. that was one of the documentarians that we that heard. That was uh, the physicist Tom Stockham. So my only I like that they, he's taken everyone's accounts, every eyewitness account that we've heard, every detail we've heard, and he's mm -hmm. knitted them all together into one kind of unified theory that holds everything together. Mm -hmm. But some of those, like the mast light, we only hear about from that one guy, right? Yeah, but he had a very particular perspective because he was on the beach, and I'm sure it was a, a certain beach. So not everyone might have seen a mast light in the water from if they weren't at that vantage point. So I can kind of buy that. Right, but it's it just seems like we added a whole third missile just to explain that guy seeing probably a boat in the water. And that... Um, well, he did see a boat in the water. He's saying he saw something come out of the boat into the sky. I know, but only he says that, and eyewitnesses are unreliable enough that you want a lot of people to have said they saw something. So it's just that some of the elements of this narrative he's put together are based on like you know one what one person thinks they saw mm -hmm. and that's really it's all really eyewitness testimony so far so that's that's where my skepticism comes in but well, I'm, I'm, it's eyewitness testimony and it's their you know investigative testimony as well there are official investigators part of this documentary three major players um as well as other people who are interviewed who are also finding some issues with the investigation, so. Yeah, but I'm fascinated so far. And there's, I don't think there's ever been a government investigation that hasn't had <laughs> some problems. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm sure I largely agree with them. 
A lengthy list of officials refused to be interviewed for the documentary, leaving it, as we mentioned, kind of one-sided, proving this, trying to prove this theory, um, though at least they did try and reach out and obtain these interviews. They list a bunch of people at the end, and the decliners ranged from then-President Bill Clinton to NTSB Chairman James Hall to lead FBI investigator James Kallstrom and many more. So... It seems like several experts, investigators, and witnesses believe that there was some sort of cover-up to hide the fact that the plane was purposefully or accidentally maybe shot down. And um, there was a cover-up to convince the public that it was just a terrible accident. But to what end, you may ask, Sean? Yes, I do ask that. (laughs) And... um... Yeah, it's really one of those qui bono situations. (laughs) Why would the NTSB do this? Well, just like the defense in a criminal trial, the documentarians seem to more want to establish reasonable doubt rather than putting forth theories to that end of who actually did this. But generally, the main theories seem to be either pre-9-11 air terrorism or a U.S. military training exercise gone presumably horribly wrong. For the former, unless a confession comes along, um, if we don't know by now, or at least aren't being told, then we likely never will. It may be hard to remember in this post-9-11 world, but back then, if a suicide bomber had checked a bag full of plastic explosives, the the baggage x-ray machines would likely have not picked it up. Now, this, uh, this is if there's an explosion on the plane, right? But... People were using plastic explosives uh, in terrorism at that point. JFK was not one of the airports at the time to have sophisticated scanners to detect those kinds of synthetic explosives. So it very well could have been placed in the cargo hold. Well, okay, but only... doesn't explain the missile. But if you buy the theory that there was a steep bank afterward, like the NTSB says, that could be part of this. Well, sure. But if you buy what the NTSB says there, then... I don't know how much we need to find an explanation other than the mechanical failure. Well, but there's no proof, Sean. There's no proof. There's no proof of the mechanical failure? No. There is the pilot saying like, oh, look, there's a weird fuel error happening yeah, just but, before but the explosion. Yeah, but then like something else must have happened and something else must have happened to transfer that voltage to the fuel tank. No, if the error he was seeing on his screen was being caused by a actual physical short in the fuel like system but then it would have had to do like two other things to explode in the fuel tank and that proof was never found okay but but i feel like you also need to go a long way to explain who wanted to shoot this commercial plane out of the air and if it was a terrorist doing the suicide bomb uh um hijacking thing then it's not a missile i mean no well it a it doesn't explain any of the eyewitness accounts about the missile which is i thought what we were trying to do i'm just i'm just mentioning what people say sean but b it just would have had to be a very sloppy a terrorism gone horribly wrong because presumably your your goal is something different from just anonymously crashing a plane with 250 people on it if you're a terrorist well let's talk about a possible military training exercise gone wrong. No one would even know what your like cause was, right? True. You would just be dead. There are some interesting details. 
in the case of there possibly being a friendly fire incident. Mm -hmm. This is what I was thinking about. Like, uh, well, like JFK. Mm -hmm. I found a very interesting article from the Press Enterprise newspaper written by David E. Hendricks and published in July 1998 that adds a little food for thought to the matter of friendly fire. In it, they list some of the most tantalizing leads come from a series of freedom of information requests filed by the press enterprise and others. And here's uh, exactly what they say. There was an unacknowledged U.S. military activity along the northeastern seaboard the night TWA Flight 800 went down. In November 1996, Navy Rear Admiral Edward Christensen said a Navy P-3 anti-submarine patrol plane and the guided missile cruiser Normandy, 185 miles south, were the only two assets that the Navy had operating off of the East Coast, in the vicinity or close to the TWA crash site. Now, the Navy acknowledges the aircraft carrier USS Theodore Roosevelt and its planes were active in the same military exercise areas as the Normandy. More submarines and surface vessels were between the P-3 and the Normandy than has been publicly revealed. The exact number depends on where the Normandy was situated. Navy records show the ship at different places at the same time. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. And I guess if you left other vessels off the report, then you'd, you know, between 96 and 2000 or whatever, nobody gets a chance to investigate those vessels. Is mm-hmm. that the idea? Mm-hmm. Uh, the article goes on. Um, Documents indicate four mystery ships were within six miles of the crash site at the moment TWA 800 exploded. A Navy captain assigned to the Pentagon told an Atlantic Fleet watch officer about 24 hours after the crash to keep the names of three merchant ships that could have been near Flight 800 in-house Navy for the time being. The directive was noted in Atlantic Fleet logs released under a Freedom of Information Act request. Now that's fascinating. Do we have those ships' names now? Um, I don't believe so. We're still calling them mystery ships, so... <laughs> Federal Aviation Administration radar captured four unidentified tracks consistent with the speed of a boat within three to six miles of the jumbo jet's course at the time of its midair breakup. One vessel, less than three miles from the crash scene, was headed southeast away from the area at 34.5 miles per hour, and another was headed toward the plane's path at 23 miles an hour. None of the ships has been publicly identified. Oh, see, I should always just wait and my questions will be answered. <laughs> Navy cruisers, frigates, and destroyers can operate at speeds above 30 knots, um, which is what the ship was doing. The, the first ship was doing, yeah. NTSB spokeswoman Shelley Hazel says the NTSB has no idea of the ship's identities and isn't concerned because that's the FBI's territory. Oh, they do get catty. <laughs> She's got claws. FBI spokesman Joe Valaquette says he doesn't know anything about the ships, but that the agency stands by its November pronouncements. There is no evidence to indicate a bomb, missile, or criminal act down Flight 800, and the U.S. military was not involved or at fault. Besides, this is the NTSB's beat. They can deal with it. 
So I suppose it could be believed that the FBI and other government entities would want to cover up evidence of friendly fire killing dozens of American and global citizens. Yes, that I do. If somehow they accidentally shot down an airliner, Mm -hmm. I do believe they would want to cover that up. Yeah. TWA Chief 747 pilot Robert Terrell Stacy, who participated in the official investigation as a TWA representative, was convinced by the splatter evidence we talked about earlier that something else had happened to the plane, aside from the theorized center fuel tank explosion. Stacy worked with journalist James Sanders and his wife Elizabeth, a TWA flight attendant, to remove items from the reconstruction site, such as samples of seat fabric and investigation documents. Mm. Very secret. Eventually, Sanders published the book The Downing of TWA Flight 800 in 1997, where he proposed that the flight had been downed by a missile and that a government cover-up had taken place so as not to panic the public. Oh, I thought you were going to say he, he proposed to his wife Elizabeth, <laughs> but uh, this was almost as sweet. <laughs> the trio were charged with theft of government property in December of that year. Sanders defense attorney Bruce Maffeo described the prosecution as extremely vindictive and insisted that the couple had a First Amendment right to take the sample and crash-related documents to expose a cover-up. Both of the Sanderses, Sanderses, I guess. Sanderses. <laughs> Sanderses were convicted of stealing evidence from civil aircraft wreckage in April 1999 and sentenced to probation. I mean, it's a crime. <laughs> This is an interesting story. In November 1996, former uh, Kennedy White House press secretary Pierre Salinger held a press conference in Cannes, France, where he publicly stated that TWA 800 was shot down by friendly fire and that the incident had been covered up by the government. Okay, but he worked for the government when Kennedy was president. Yes. Salinger said... He was basing the claims on information he saw in a document given to him six weeks ago by someone in French intelligence with close contacts to U.S. officials, but refused to name his source. However, CNN quickly found Salinger's document to be a widely accessible email letter that has been circulating for at least six weeks on the Internet's (laughs) World Wide Web, which was authored by Richard Russell, a retired airline pilot. Unfortunately for Salinger, this gave birth to the term Pierre Salinger syndrome, which is used to denote the belief that everything on the internet is true. Now, as we mentioned, there are other theories that don't involve foul play, maybe a meteor strike, electromagnetic interference, a lightning strike. But again, there's no proof for anything else. In 2004, New York Times bestselling author Nelson DeMille released his novel Nightfall, a thriller involving uh, a couple who witness and videotape the crash of TWA Flight 800 and what appears to be a missile rising from the ocean towards the plane. So it certainly played into the interest surrounding the conspiracy theories uh, quite effectively as it hit number one on the bestseller list and stuck around for 11 weeks. So That's why I've seen you th- f- fondling your copy of uh, Plum Island. <laughs> You're an idiot. In 2015, the New York Daily News ran an article titled Former Obama Pilot, colon, uh, TWA Flight 800 was not blown up by a faulty fuel tank. It was shot down. I'll always believe that, and here's why. That's a New York Daily News headline. <laughs> they know you're not going to read past it, so just make it article length. Yeah, pretty much. 
in it, uh, 28-year veteran pilot Andrew Danzinger, who flew Barack Obama during his 2008 presidential campaign, begins with his thesis. Was TWA Flight 800 shot out of the sky? As a former pilot, that is a question I get asked about all the time. I'm no conspiracy theorist, but let's be clear. Yes, I say it was, and I believe the FBI covered it up. He goes on to state that jets just do not explode in midair unless they've been shot down or bombed. Danziger elaborated, Just doing some simple arithmetic, hundreds of millions of flights flew around the U.S. between 1958 and 1996 and never exploded in midair because a combustible mix of fuel vapors triggered an explosion in the center fuel tank. That's just in the U.S. If we account for all of the flying in the world during that time frame, that would be well north of one billion flights in which there wasn't a single in-flight explosion. Okay, so it's very rare. Danziger ended his analysis by stating, As an experienced commercial pilot, I know this much. Planes do not blow up by themselves. I firmly believe that this plane was shot down. If it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Or bull. Oh, snap. Zing. Um, Carrie, do you find that comforting or deeply horrifying? Or both? Yes. <laughs> the wreckage itself was officially decommissioned by the NTSB in July 2021, a year ago this month, as the NTSB had agreements with the victims' families that the wreckage cannot be used in any kind of public memorial or scattered in the ocean. The plan was to scan each piece of debris with a three-dimensional laser scanner, with the data being permanently permanently archived, after which the wreckage would be destroyed and the metal recycled. Oh, and it'll be so fun because it's a loophole where they can build each part of the plane again and then put it on display as part of a memorial. Uh, Perhaps. I hope no. Hopefully they won't do that. (laughs) Yeah. Any parts of the plane that cannot be recycled would be disposed of in landfills. Destruction of the wreckage was scheduled for completion before the end of 2021, so presumably that's happened by now. That's the last that I was able to find on it. No more explosive residue will be found. Yeah, certainly not. And so 26 years to the week since the horrific TWA Flight 800 tragedy, there remains almost as many questions as definitive answers, if not more. But most importantly, the ones who passed aren't the only victims in this situation. It's also their families who have had to live without their loved ones for decades now and are still unsatisfied with many of the conclusions reached by the investigation. It's also the rescue divers who had the experience who had to experience what the New York Times called a dark harvest of misery. Oh Jesus, that's the latest Nick Cave album I believe. Yeah. Uh, They were mining the ruins on the ocean floor, bringing up the remains of passengers and the wreckage itself. As trauma counselor Frank Farrell stated, you pull up someone who looks like your wife or child and you never forget that. Trauma burns into your memory. It's also the witnesses who had to watch the horror that day and deal with the fact that many of their testimonies were altered or dismissed. It's also towns like Montersville, Pennsylvania, where virtually every single one of Montersville then Montersville's then fifth, sorry. It's also towns like Montersville, Pennsylvania, where virtually every single one of Montersville's then 5,400 residents had a direct connection to one of the students and chaperones on the plane that day, heading to their exciting trip to Paris. That's a tiny, how much of their graduating class did they lose? A lot. 
I once stopped by the TWA Flight 800 International Memorial on the way out of Smith's Point Beach at Smith Point uh, County Park in Shirley, Long Island. Smith Point is the closest public access point to where the debris was found, and so the official memorial was erected there in 2002. It was a sobering experience to visit. Um, It consists of several slabs of dark marble, with the dedication reading, A labor of love for all those lost and those who must remember still find comfort here. The memorial uh, contains all the names of those lost in the crash, as well as the image of ocean waves and flying birds on the opposite side. There's an additional memorial in Montersville, as well as one in Stevenson, Alabama. Stevenson, Alabama? Yeah, five people from there died. I don't know if it was one family. Yeah, And there are likely more as well. Um, Perhaps if you find yourself, listener, affected by this story or simply nearby, it may be worthwhile to stop at one of these memorials and pay tribute to the people behind the tragedy, the lives behind the conspiracy, and take time to remember those that died that awful July evening. So, Sean, what do you think really happened with Flight 800? Well, unfortunately, I don't think there's any explanation I've heard that brings every single piece of testimony and evidence and conflicting information we've heard into one package, like the uh, producers of that documentary tried valiantly to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, honestly, the thing I'm most inclined to believe, and this is because so much of the other evidence is resting on eyewitness testimony, and because I think Occam's Razor says to eliminate anything where I have to invent you know, factions or or personal rivalries between um, billionaires or, <laughs> or um, you know, squads of ninjas on a motorboat or something. <laughs> so I, I think, you know, the fact that the pilot said, oh, there's something wrong with our fuel line, and then one of the explanations was like a spark that would be near the fuel line, that kind of brings that together for me in a way that I could say. And these people on the ground certainly witnessed something dramatic, right? So their brain could fill in all kinds of... But everyone, like Details almost after. everyone, there's a lot of people that saw something like a missile. Yes. That, that's my problem is that I could I could believe one person, a couple people, even a handful, but there's like dozens of people that saw this. And so there's... Including people who, like like a Vietnam, you know, pilot who has experience with both flying and missiles saying, no, this is not just some, you know optical illusion after the fact like this was a missile that was heading for that plane it would just have to be such a big conspiracy we, we yeah. were talking earlier about how in this story a, a fine point is actually I, i'm never quite sure how that expression is supposed to be used either a fine point or not a fine point is put on the fbi and ntsb <laughs> um not working well together not mm-hmm. sharing their information um, well only one of those factions had to know i don't think that that's true I think if you are working, if the FBI is doing a criminal investigation and you're the NTSB, I think you're going to have to either let them in or do a lot of work to keep the best law enforcement in the country from figuring out what you're doing. Well, I would have thought that it would have been the FBI to cover up because if it was like a military thing, that seems to be where they would come in. Sure, but if the FBI comes in and says, nope, no criminal problem here, now it's the NTSB's job to investigate. So well, the- that's... Yeah, I don't. But they don't do criminal investigations. They're all only looking at accidents. So I don't know. I, it's it's very 
I don't know. And then you would expect the conspiracy, to me, you'd expect a conspiracy to start fraying over the years and get a little looser. People uh, move on to different jobs. They don't have the same, you know, kind of need to keep the secret. Loyalty. Loyalty. And um, so you would see the conspiracy start to fall apart. But instead, it seems like in 1996, a lot of people were like, maybe this, it was one of these rocket things. And then by 2000, the whole, at least law enforcement apparatus had unified behind like, no, we can, we can make this self-explosion theory work. I'm just so conflicted. I really am. Yeah. Now, all of that said, are there reasons the government would want to cover up the plane being blown up? Yes. I think it would have to be either friendly fire, as we said, Mm -hmm. and we... We'll talk about it, because I'm sure we'll obviously do an episode on the Kennedy assassination at some point. Um, But one of the popular theories there is that a government agent accidentally discharged their firearm and blew off the president's head. Um, And that's a situation... you wouldn't want people to know about that. You'd have to cover it up. And so I could see how if through some gross error, a uh, wrong order, radar confusion, whatever, um, this civilian airliner gets blown up by a U.S. destroyer or something, submarine... um, Yeah, you would want to cover that up, slide that under the rug. And also, and this is the other theory that you get with Kennedy, too, if it was a foreign actor, if it was a terrorist group, or especially if it was another government, and the government wants to avoid going to war with that country, then you probably have to keep the American people in the dark about that as well. Right. Um, Any other foul play uh, explanation? To me, I I don't see the government needing to cover it up. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm real conflicted, guys. Um, I'm not the one to just always believe conspiracy theories, but there seems to be as much evidence for accident as there is for some sort of purposeful or even accidental shoot down. Mm-hmm. So I'm conflicted. I really am. I hope I hope the families find peace. <laughs> um, but. Yeah, I, I genuinely don't know what to think. Um, well, it's a shame that uh, this was so long ago, and there's probably not uh, additional new details coming out. But well, on, uh, only even less because the evidence has been destroyed at this point. You know yeah, exactly. So we'll keep our ears out, and hopefully, we'll be talking about this in a news segment sometime coming up. Maybe even coming up next. What? I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. It's true crime time. 
The most recent news relating to TWA 800 came out just a few days ago. What? Mm -hmm. Presumably to coincide with the anniversary of the event. Just like our podcast. Yeah, it's not even on the Wikipedia or anything yet. I just found it in the news. (laughs) A lawsuit filed in the U.S. District Court in Massachusetts charges that the federal government released a false report contending that the explosion in the plane was the result of an electrical fire in its center fuel tank. The plaintiffs include many family members and estates of the victims. The lawsuit states, quote, only recently, thanks to the work of physicist Tom, Dr. Thomas Stalkup from the documentary, mm-hmm. through his Freedom of Information Act litigation in Massachusetts federal court, has evidence emerged proving that the TWA 800 explosion was not caused by any defect in the airplane, but instead by an errant United States missile fired at aerial target drones flying nearby. Wow. So last time he didn't have any specific actors to point to. Yeah, maybe he has more evidence. I mean, again, this is extremely new. So we'll see what happens in the trial. Shots fired, pun intended, at the U.S. government. (laughs) It was further contended by plaintiffs that the defendants engaged in a top-down cover-up to prevent the public from learning the truth about TWA 800. Mm. Tell them, Stolly. Well, it it seems Stalkup's work has continued, and many, including the victims' families, or, you know, a lot of them, still believe in it. So we'll keep you posted on where this suit goes. I'm very curious to see if he has any additional information or evidence. I can't believe the timing on this, Kara. You did did this on purpose. You you called your buddy Stalk up and you got him to release the info. I genuinely didn't do any of this on purpose. Not even blow up the plane? I would never. I thought I could get you. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. Special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons, and you can come and support us over on Patreon if you uh, want to show us how much you love the show (laughs) and maybe get a little extra content from time to time. Uh, Top fans over there, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, and Ira. And I'm really uncomfortable with the fact that I just said fans. You guys are family. (laughs) See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.